I just feel so lonely. I wonder if she's ever gonna I just text me back. So much. Why am I so anxious all the time? What should I have for dinner today? I'm so worried just about breathe. that job interview. Just breathe. I really should work out today. I just can't catch a break. Would you love me? Just if try to really relax. Me? I can't just keep breathe. doing this. Just breathe. I just feel so lonely. I'm so worried about that. What should I have for dinner? Why am I so anxious? Just breathe. Well, good morning, 11 o'clock service. I'm glad that you are here. If you're joining us in the room, those of you joining us online, welcome. I, I think one of the things that we uh, are all very well aware of is that fall is upon us. And while there are a lot of things that I love about the fall season, cooler temps, bonfire, basketball starting up here pretty soon, there are things about the summer that I am going to miss. And at the top of the list for me is mowing. I love to mow. Now I know I'm not the only crazy one in here that loves to mow. So let me see your hands if you enjoy mowing. Yes, all right, I am with my people. Raise your hands if like, that is the thing that you're most excited about going away now that it's fall. You do not like mowing. I love mowing, I love it, I always have. In fact, uh, when I was in fourth grade, I don't know why I remember this. This is a true story. When I was in fourth grade, we had an assignment that we had to write a poem about something that we loved. And while all of my friends were writing about their pets or their parents, I was waxing poetic about my love for mowing. Like it was just that deep within me. And, and the sentiment is still the same. And so while I'm going to miss mowing over the next five months or so, there is one thing about lawn care that I am not going to miss, and that is pulling weeds. Like as much as I love mowing, I hate pulling weeds. And there are places in my yard that it does not matter what I do, how many times I plant seed and try to take care of it and water and all of that, grass does not grow. And yet there's also a place in like our flower bed in front of our yard that I can put stuff down. I can spray weed killer all over it and weeds just continue to pop up. It's like they are sitting there mocking me, laughing at me as they grow back up, taking over that garden. And it's this constant battle of trying to pull those weeds out and they just keep coming back. And I think for many of us, like that's what this fight is like that we are in in this battle of our headspace. We keep pulling out the lies that Satan is whispering to us and they just keep coming back. And it does not matter what we do. It does not matter how often we fight them off or pull them out. They just keep returning. And our headspace sometimes feels absolutely overgrown with those thoughts that want to take over. But our Heavenly Father has given us tools to root them out. He's given us weapons to fight this battle that we are in over our headspace, this war that is raging in our minds. And it doesn't mean that those lies will never come back once we get rid of them. It means that we keep them from taking root and starting to, to grow even stronger. The great reformer Martin Luther once said, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. 
I heard that quote this last week. I'm like, I want to frame that somewhere because that's a, that's a good word. You cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. You can't keep weeds from growing in your garden, but you can keep them from taking over. You can't keep Satan from whispering lies in your mind, but you can keep those lies from taking root and controlling your life and your emotions and your relationships. And as we wrap up our Headspace series today, I want to give us one more tool, one more weapon that we can use in this battle for our Headspace. And so far, we've talked about uh, the, the power of, of um, replacing the, the lies with the truth of God's word, holding every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. A couple of weeks ago, Josh did an excellent job teaching us about how to rewire our minds and getting out of the mental ruts that we are stuck in. Last week, we looked at the power of reframing our circumstances and challenging our thinking errors that inform our emotions and our behaviors and get us kind of stuck in this cycle of, of thoughts and emotions and behaviors and thoughts and emotions and behaviors. And this week, as we kind of close everything out on this series, we are going to look at the power of praise in the midst of this battle. Rejoicing. Rejoicing, not in the trouble, not in the trial, not in the pain, but rejoicing over the tender, loving presence of our Heavenly Father. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible app that you like to use, turn with me to our text today, 1 Kings chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, I think we got some in the pew backs there in front of you. If you want to download a Bible app real quickly, the YouVersion Bible app, fantastic. You'll be able to pull it up, download it, and get to our text today before we get to it. We'll also have the words up on the screen, 1 Kings 19. I kind of catch you up on some context here as we dive into our text. In chapter 16, there's this guy named Ahab that becomes king over Israel. And to say that he is not a good dude is a bit of an understatement. In fact, chapter 16, verse 30 tells us that he did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any king before him. And that is saying something. So this was a bad guy who, who led God's people astray. And so to get Ahab's attention and to rescue his people from the dangerous path that they were on, God sends the prophet Elijah to confront him about his sin and his actions. But instead of turning back to the Lord and changing his ways, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel start this rampage of killing God's prophets. And they try to hunt down Elijah and take his life too. I don't know about you, but that would start to mess with my headspace just a little bit. <laughs> if like the king and the queen, two most powerful people in, in my country, were coming after my life, that'll hang with you. In chapter 18, Elijah stops running and, and he goes and he confronts Ahab. He, he sets up this showdown between himself and 850 false prophets who were more committed to their king than they were to the Lord. 
And in the end, Elijah emerges victorious after an incredible display of God's power in 1 Kings chapter 18. And you would think that after all of this, you know, God's warning, seeing God work in incredible ways, that Ahab would see the air in his waist, his eyes would be open, he would turn back to the Lord and follow him, but that's not what happened. Instead, he and his wife doubled down on their pursuit of Elijah, and so he runs for his life yet again. Yet again, Elijah runs for his life. And in chapter 19, the prophet sits down underneath a tree. And he is absolutely exhausted. He is physically exhausted. He is emotionally exhausted. He is spiritually exhausted. And look at what he says in 1 Kings 19, verse 4. He says, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. I've had enough. Have you ever been in that headspace before? Like when you've just had enough, you are worn out and exhausted. You can't have that conversation again. You can't fight that fight anymore. You are done. There is nothing left in you to give. There is no more fight in you. That's where Elijah is. And it's so bad. He says, my ancestors have it better than I do because at least they're dead and they don't have to live through this. That's a strong statement. Elijah was not in a good headspace. And so he did what many of us do oftentimes when we are struggling. He goes and he takes a nap. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Sometimes, I had a professor tell me one time in college, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. Yes, sign me up for that spirituality course. I am in, probably even this afternoon. I'm going to be very spiritual this afternoon. (laughs) But Elijah has had enough. So he curls up underneath this tree and he takes a nap. And don't miss what God does next. I, I, I'm, I'm so, I don't know, heartbroken that Elijah had to go through this. But man, I'm so grateful that he did so that it can be recorded in, in Scripture and we can see a little bit more about what God is like when we're in those places. I I think that there is this idea that has crept into the church that to be a good Christian, you have to have it all together. Like, Like you have to put on a good face and pretend like everything is okay, even though on the drive to church you were fighting with your spouse or the kids were yelling and then you were walking through the parking lot saying, would you just please at least shut up so we can look like a good, happy family as we walk into church? <laughs> and that anything less than that image is not okay. Or to be anything less than happy and bubbly and full of joy actually will make God disappointed in us. But that's not what we see in our text. Elijah is not in a good place mentally or emotionally. He is done. He has had enough. 
He can't take it anymore. And let's not gloss over the fact that Elijah wanted to die. And God's response to him in this moment was not judgment. It was not condemnation. God's response to Elijah in this moment is tenderness and love and compassion. I want you to know today that whatever you are going through and however you feel right now, that this is a place where it's okay to be honest about those things. To be honest with others, but most importantly, to be honest with God. Because it's not until we deal with reality that we can start to change that reality. God's shoulders are broad enough to carry your concerns and his love is gentle enough to bind up your wounds. And so Elijah takes a nap. And when he wakes up, man, we see, we see God's tenderness and mercy to him. He wakes up and he finds fresh baked bread and a cup of cool water to refresh him. And he takes it and he eats it and he goes to sleep again. And he wakes up and the same thing is right there waiting for him. And he takes it and he eats it. And when Elijah's going through a hard time, God is like that friend who says, hey, why don't you just stay in your pajamas today? <laughs> I'll go and get lunch and dinner if you need it. And I'll take care of whatever it is that you need right now. And in our moments of weakness, and we all have them, God draws near to us. He he cares for us. Two of my favorite promises in Scripture, one's in uh, Psalms chapter 34, verse 7, that says that, that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He does not run from our pain. He enters into it. He is near to the brokenhearted. First Peter encourages us to cast all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. He comforts us in our affliction and he walks with us in our pain. That's what he does for Elijah. And like a good friend, God walks with him. But like a true friend, he doesn't just continue to walk down the path of darkness that Elijah is on. He shows him a different path. He leads him to a better path. And in verse 9, God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And I don't think that God asks Elijah that question because he's kind of caught off guard by the situation. I don't think that God's like, hey, I checked out there just for a little bit. Kind of catch me up. What's going on in your life? You good? <laughs> no, doesn't seem like it. God's, God knows full well what's going on. I think what he's doing here is that he wants to see, Elijah, are you, are you dealing in reality too? Do you know what's going on? He's drawing it out of Elijah to draw Elijah closer to himself. He is doing the hard work of heart work inside of Elijah. He's already cared for his body physically, and now he is caring for his soul. And so he asks him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And this is how he responds in verse 10. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, 
And now they are trying to kill me too. I am the only one left. I think that's a very telling statement into where Elijah's headspace is because it reveals a lie that he has believed. In fact, this was more than just a lie. This was a stronghold that had taken root in his life. And it's one that we see Elijah repeat multiple times in chapter 18 and 19. In chapter 18, verse 22, Elijah says, I am the only one left. He says it here. And then again, a few verses later in verse 14, He says, I am the only one left. Elijah believed the lie that he was alone, that no one understood what he was going through, and that he had to go through it all alone, by himself. I'm telling you, that is one of the greatest tricks of Satan, is to isolate us and make us feel like no one cares, no one is walking with us, that we are all alone. And we know that this is a lie that Elijah had believed because of a conversation that takes place earlier in chapter 18. In verse 3, we're introduced to a man named Obadiah. And this is what it says. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. A little bit later on in in verse 7, Elijah meets Obadiah, and Obadiah tells this to Elijah. He knows somewhere in the recesses of his mind, Elijah knows, I am not actually alone. But here's what I've learned in my own life. Maybe you have too. It's really hard to reason with emotion. It is really hard to reason with emotion. That there are times when we just feel something so strongly is true that there is not a lot of amount of reason that is going to be able to change the way that we feel. That's where Elijah was. He felt it so deeply that he thought that it was true. And what we talked about and found last week is that a lie believed as truth will affect your life as if it were true. And Elijah was stuck in a rut by the lie that he believed and it was affecting him as if it were true. But listen, even if it were, even if Elijah was the only person on earth left who loved God and served him, it did not mean that he was alone And God, who had drawn near to Elijah in his emotional pain and cared for his body and his soul, now draws Elijah closer to himself to show him that he is not alone. He has Elijah go and stand on the mountain of God, where God had done great things before and would do great things centuries later. He draws him out there and he says, my presence is about to pass by. And this is what we read. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along in in verse 11. As Elijah is standing there ready for the Lord to pass by, it says a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, the symbol of reverence and worship. And he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. 
Elijah's life was filled with noise and turmoil and chaos. And God was not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. Instead, God was in the whisper. And when someone whispers, what do you do? You lean in. You draw close. You quiet yourself and you quiet your surroundings so that you can hear the still small voice. And all Elijah can see and feel is worry and anxiety and fear. Jezebel is coming after him. He feels alone. And so God quiets Elijah's soul and he gives him a new perspective. He draws near to Elijah and he cares for him. And Elijah, in response, draws closer to him. And when he does, everything changes. Elijah has a new perspective. God combats Satan's lies with the truth. And he says, listen, you are not alone. Not only am I with you, but I have set aside for myself 7,000 people who have not bowed to this false god. And after this encounter with the father, Elijah sets off feeling refreshed and restored. And what we see in Elijah is also true for us. The presence of God changes our perspective. Knowing that God is with us changes the way we look at the challenges in front of us. Craig Rochelle writes, we get fixated on the presence of our problems and we lose focus on the presence of God. Our problems are the thing that we magnify. They seem so big and overwhelming to us and we miss the presence of our big and powerful and overwhelming God. I think it's why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus tells us to start not with our request, but to start by focusing on the presence and the power of God. He knows that everything else, all of our worries, all of our cares, all of our concerns will become right-sized when we remember how big our God is and that he is with us through it all. And it does not minimize the difficult situation that we go through sometimes in life. It magnifies the greatness of our God who is with us during those And when we have this perspective, we are able to practice what the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 4 when he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And we can rejoice not because of the things that we are going through, but because of the powerful presence of our Holy Spirit who is near. We can rejoice because his shoulders are broad enough to carry our concerns and his love is gentle enough to bind up our wounds. And as we close today, and we wrap up this series, I want to invite you into a little exercise that has helped me focus more on the presence of God in the midst of just my day-to-day life, in the midst of those things that cause me to worry and fret and fear. It's a practice that author John Eldridge calls um, benevolent detachment. 
I like that phrase, benevolent detachment. It's showing kindness to ourself by letting go of the things that we cannot control and letting God control them for us. And really it comes down to a, a pretty simple, just eight-word prayer. It's God, I give everything and everyone to you. Like, say that with me this morning, if you will. God, I give everything and everyone to you. And so as we wrap up this morning, I want to invite us to spend some time in benevolent detachment. To pray this prayer of God, I give everything and everyone to you. And so I just invite you to put your feet on the floor. to relax your shoulders. Take a couple of deep breaths. I carry my stress in my jaw. <laughs> Maybe you do too. Relax your jaw a little bit. Relax your neck. Just feel the burdens and whatever it's car you're carrying, the tension. Just kind of flow through you, out through your feet. And spend some time right now just praying that simple eight-word prayer. God, I give everything and everyone to you. Even if you're not a praying person, even if maybe this is the first time you've ever prayed to the Father in Jesus, pray this prayer and give over to him those things that only he can control. kind of hone in here just a little bit. Let's take that first part. God, I give everything. Is there a situation that you're walking through in life or maybe that someone you love is walking through? And it's hard and it is weighing on you. Maybe it's the last thing you think about before you go to bed and it's the first thing you think about when you wake up. Are you going through something right now that just is so heavy and burdensome? I invite you right now to practice benevolent detachment. It doesn't mean that you don't care about that. It means that you are releasing any sense of control to the Father who is in control and who loves you and cares about this situation as much or more than you do. So spend some time releasing that to him right now. Is there a person or a 
relationship that is just not where you want it to be right now. The person that, that maybe you care about that's going through a challenge or that maybe is challenging. <laughs> Spend some time benevolently detaching control and giving that person to the God who loves them even more than you do. finally, let's spend some time rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord because He is near. Rejoice in the Lord that He invites us to give everything and everyone to Him and that we can trust Him with the things and the people that we care most about. close with this invitation from Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. He says, are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you will recover your life. I will show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. <clears throat> Keep company with me. And you will learn to live freely and lightly. And so are you tired today? Are you worn out? Have you had enough Turn to Jesus who brings real rest and renewal to your heart and your soul and your headspace. We want to give you an opportunity now as we close to respond in this moment and however you need and feel appropriate. And we're going to have some people around the room that have green lanyards on that are here to serve. They would love nothing more than to pray with you this morning. If you need prayer, if you want someone to pray with you and for you, please, this is a place where it is okay. No one's going to judge you if you get up and go for prayer. <laughs> go to them and let them serve you and, and let God enter into that situation with you and draw you closer to him. If you want to talk to them, Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org/messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.